Hello and welcome to episode number 154 of the Draft Analyst, presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Chris Tripodi, and I'm joined by Tony Pauline, as always. And for the second week in a row, we get to actually talk about live football games. I know there have been some hiccups, and I'm sure those will continue as the season forges on. We've already had several games canceled the past couple of days. But as long as we avoid those hiccups turning into something more serious, I think things are looking like they're in pretty good shape right now. And hopefully, Tony, those won't be famous last words. And I don't think it will. I mean, things seem to be evolving in the, in the right way as far as testing is concerned. Obviously, what has been pretty much a, a slimmed down college football schedule the past two weeks is really going to take off this week as the SEC kicks off. And then a few weeks after that, we'll have the Big Ten. So uh, keep your fingers crossed. Absolutely. And we'll get to this week's game reviews in just a minute. But first, a word from our sponsor. The wait is finally over. Football is back. Well, it's back in most places, but not here in the state of New York, if you've seen the Jets or the Giants play. And <laughs> while you may not be at a game this year, especially if you're a Jets or Giants season ticket holder, you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. And those early returns, Tony, are saying that it'll be wise to bet against the New York Jets this season, even though it's just been two games. Uh, in a variety of ways, not only just the wins and losses, but the uh, over-unders, the way the Jets' offense has performed. And uh, I-, I guess the big bet against the Jets is how long does Adam Gase survive? From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, maybe even something on the aforementioned Adam Gase, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino as well. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Now we will start this week's review with a matchup in the Appalachian State Marshall game that really turned out to be pretty one-sided. Marshall won the game 17-7 and the Hurts' top prospect won his individual battle as well. Left tackle Josh Ball was excellent all game, a big part of an offensive line that didn't allow a sack, and he showed all the traits that intrigue NFL scouts while also dominating Appalachian State defensive end Demetrius Taylor with his length. Ball was able to move Taylor off his spots, sealed off lanes in the running game, even showed the athleticism to pull across the line of scrimmage and get to the second level. He did a nice job sliding his feet, both getting to the edge in pass protection and when engaged in blocks to keep himself between the ball carrier and the defender, just a very good all-around performance for the potential day two pick. Meanwhile, Taylor struggled with the length of ball. As we mentioned last week, as a possibility, he was slow to shed blocks once he was engaged. The only way he really won was with a quick slap to keep clean before the offensive line could get their hands on him. We did mention the size concerns with Taylor on our last two episodes, our preview of the conference and our preview of this game specifically, and he just really doesn't have an NFL body. He lacks the length and athleticism for defensive end and the explosive ability to be a legitimate three technique. The guy plays hard, and he can definitely be effective depth at the NFL level, but his limitations were really on full display Saturday. Yeah, it was not just against Ball either. I mean, he struggled going up against tight ends, and it's really one of the few times that I've watched Demetrius Taylor where he hasn't impacted the game in one way or another. And I think those physical limitations – 
really showed themselves because even though he's a terrific football player, like you said, he doesn't have NFL size. What's his position at the next level, which is why I think he's going to be a late round pick and he's maybe a Mike Vrabel type or, or one of those guys that Bill Belichick or Bill Belichick coach takes in the late rounds, primarily play special teams and then move around on the defense. Great player, but just doesn't have a great body. And you can't say that about Josh Ball. Because as you said, you know, Josh Ball looks the part and he really played the part against Appalachian State. You talked about his footwork, his movement skills. What really impresses me about Ball is he's almost six foot seven and the way he bends his knees, the way he's able to adjust, the way he's able to fluidly move about the, uh, about the field and pick up stunts or pick up blitzes or adjust to hit linebackers on the second level really doesn't show much in the way of stiffness in his game, uses his hands very well which is important, obviously, for any offensive lineman, but especially left tackle. I really think that this was a step in the right direction because, as we said, Ball came into the season, graded as a, le- a last-day pick, primarily because he was a rotational tackle last year. There are some scouts who feel he could slide into the second day now that he's going to be a full-time starter if he shows consistent improvement, and he was real good throughout that uh, Appalachian State game. Now, the most competitive game from last weekend – that we'll discuss on today's show was Wake Forest and NC State. NC State pulled out a 45-42 win, but even with all those points, the player we were focusing on was a defender. Demon Deacon's defensive end, Carlos Basham Jr., arguably the top senior prospect in the nation in his matchup with NC State's tackles, a couple of street free agents in Justin Witt and Tyrone Riley. And Basham continued his streak of over a year long, I think it's either 19 or 20 games now, Um, consecutive games with a tackle for loss, had a sack to close out the first half, totaled five tackles in the game as well. And neither Witt nor Riley had answers for Basham in this one. Not that we really expected them to, but Basham blew up several runs by pushing blockers back into the backfield. He won around the edge. He won with quick inside moves. He even showed his speed and athleticism by chasing plays down that went 20 to 25 yards down the field. So the whole package was really on display for Basham in this game, even if he didn't put up a monster statistical performance. And part of the reason is, it's because of the way that Wake Forest uses Basham. I mean, he's not a guy that consistently lines up with his hand in the dirt and just pins his ears back and takes off up the field. That's not what happens with Basham. They use him in a variety of different ways to set the edge. Basically, they they will move him off the line of scrimmage. And he plays smart, disciplined assignment football. He's a guy who can get up the field and make plays when he's required to, but he'll also stay with his assignments and stay in the space or occupy the gaps that he's supposed to, which is supposed to help the defense. Although the the Wake Forest defense has given up a lot of points the uh, the past couple weeks, but that's because there's no one, no one playing around Basham. Uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just not only impressed with him with the physical skills, but I'm impressed with the, the discipline, the instincts, and the way he plays within the system. And again, like we saw in week one, North Carolina State on a number of times specifically just stayed away. You could, tell, you could tell they were staying away from Basham the way Clemson did. They were running away from him. They were game planning away from him. I did think that Riley, the left tackle from North Carolina State, showed some ability. He, he's out of position at left tackle. He's going to have to be a right tackle in the NFL, maybe even in a guard, a former defensive end, 
he was a he was graded as a wait and see prospect last year, but he got injured coming back for a sixth season. I think he's got a, a good amount of upside. He just has to get used to the position uh, of of blocking of off at the offensive tackle spot. But again, I think he's out of position at left tackle. The problem is, is the right tackle has no chance at left tackle, which is why Riley's lining up on the left side. Yeah, I mean, with Riley, too, there were a couple plays, especially early in the game, where he kind of washed Basham out of a couple running plays, you know, pushed him out so that Basham couldn't make an impact. Uh, so that was, you know, a couple impressive reps that I did see from Riley, like you mentioned. And, and like you were saying about Basham, I mean, there will be times where you watch him and he's staying in place. As you said, he's not just running up the field, you know, playing for sacks and trying to get after the quarterback um, and, you know, losing contain on potential running plays or, or draws or zone reads anything like that you know he will stay and he will wait and he will just read the play because he trusts his athletic ability he trusts the fact that he knows he's going to be able to get where he needs to go to make plays on the field and you know you put a guy like that in an NFL camp and he's immediately going to impress a coaching staff not only because of the physical tools but also the fact that he's just going to be ready to play and fill a role immediately on any defense and I mean if there's one quasi-concern about the Basham's game is he's not a real big hold-the-point type of defender, defensive lineman. That should come in time as he physically matures, and that's really one of the positives about Riley's game. I mean, Riley is a big, strong guy, like who, like I said, is a former defensive lineman, and his uh, forte is run blocking, which is why he was able to get the better of Basham in those situations, which you mentioned. Now, last weekend's lone ranked matchup didn't really live up to the hype. Miami rolled Louisville 47-34. Game wasn't as close as the score would tell you either. Malik Cunningham, quarterback for the Cardinals, really struggled early. Some shaky pass placement and decision-making came up short on what was really an easy touchdown throw at the goal line. And Tutu Atwell, his big play receiver, kind of went as Cunningham went, enjoyed a big second half as the Cardinals played catch-up, ended with eight catches, 114 yards, and two touchdowns, one of them coming on the meaningless final possession. But Atwell really showed off his natural receiving skills that we talked about in our preview, in addition to his explosive athleticism. Des Fitzpatrick on the other side went for seven catches and 74 yards. But besides Atwell, the real offensive star for Louisville was running back JV and Hawkins. Showed off some explosiveness, some quick cuts. Runs pretty hard with decent strength for a smaller back. They don't use him a ton on the inside, but he's somewhat effective when they do. Overall, though, the story of the game was the Miami defense which included the secondary that slowed down a team with really several NFL skill players on offense. Al Blades Jr. was gifted an interception early, almost gifted a second one late, but at the very least he was in tight coverage most of the day on crossers when he was dealing in man. Miami did play a lot of zone. Um, Gervon Hall made a few plays against the run as well. Just really a dominant win for the Hurricanes here, especially on the defensive side of the ball. A lot of pressure. I mean, Miami got a lot of pressure up the field, which made things miserable uh from Malik Cunningham uh they ended up with three tackle with three sacks 10 tackles for loss Quincy Roach a guy who I like a lot former uh a Temple player a graduate tra- I should say graduate transfer from Temple he ended up with uh two and a half sacks uh Jared uh, Hunt he had uh, two sacks so they got a lot of pressure up the field I was impressed with Miami uh, linebacker Zach McLeod guy who made the tough decision to sit out last year so he could come back and be the number one guy this year. He's done exactly that. Bubba Bolden, tough, uh, strong safety type, doesn't have the great speed, but was very forceful. I I mean, I think Louisville 
like you said, they were playing catch up from the get uh, from the get go. It was it really wasn't a contest, and it wasn't as close as the thirteen point differential as you saw. Uh, Atwell is a big play receiver. I like Javian Hawkins. I thought Des Fitzpatrick had a decent game. He is what he is. He's a big, strong possession receiver that really isn't going to break the uh, deep throw, or deep uh, play, or the home run a ball. I I think the uh, the stats against uh, Western Kentucky were a bit of a mirage, uh, but it, but he he's a solid number five, potential number five receiver at the next level. I was talking with someone today who's got the inside scoop on him. Uh, someone within the league, and they think he's going to be a solid day three selection. Doesn't have the great upside, but if you're looking for a taller possession receiver with solid hands, Fitzpatrick can fit that mold. Yeah, and he fits kind of well in that offense, too, considering the playmaking of Cunningham, the playmaking of Hawkins, uh, you know, what Atwell can do with the ball in his hands. But I'm actually glad you mentioned Bubba Bolden because he stood out to me on several occasions, just chasing plays down, uh, hitting hard, coming up. He did struggle. Uh, if he was lined up over someone like Atwell in the slot, but you're not expecting a player like Bubba Bolden to really stay with a guy like Tutu Atwell. Uh, it's just not a fair matchup for Bolden, but you know, for a guy who's just stepping into the lineup this year, he really made an impact and, and looks like he's a guy that could kind of rise for his ability to to play and run defense. Absolutely outplayed Gervin Hall, who was the guy that uh, we talked about, especially myself talked about uh, keying on and, and stepped to the forefront. Now, we only have four games this upcoming weekend that we're looking closely at from an NFL draft matchup perspective. And for the first, we're going to go right back to that Louisville passing game, looking to bounce back against a pit secondary that features a couple day three safeties in Paris Ford and Damar Hanlon. Jason Pinnock at cornerback is a draftable prospect as well. And Pitt is actually using him to shadow, at least they did last week, against Syracuse's Taj Harris. You don't really see that as much in college as you do in the NFL, but it wouldn't shock me to see it again this week. Pinnock goes around six feet tall, could see him lined up on Des Fitzpatrick, kind of like Al Blades Jr. was last weekend, at least when Miami wasn't playing zone. So it'll be a team effort once again to stop Tutu Atwa, who went for the 8-114-2 and two that I mentioned against the Hurricanes, and that includes Hamlin, who usually plays to the field side. Ford plays more to the boundary. Ford's the more athletic safety Hamlin's the guy with great instincts, a really good football player. So it's a strong secondary and yet another test for Malik Cunningham and this passing offense. Cunningham's really going to have to play better early than he did last game. Obviously, those stats look nice because of garbage time in the second half, a couple fourth quarter touchdowns with the game in hand. Tony, how would you compare this matchup with last week's for Louisville? Well, I, I think it's a similar situation in that the pit secondary is going to have to try and stop Tutu Atwell from making the big play along with the quarterback. Uh, Paris Ford, right now I have him great as a fourth-round pick. There are some people who understandably believe he's going to go in the second day of the draft if he enters, and I'm told he's going to enter. Uh, I, Ford's a terrific player. He's physical. He's explosive. He's got decent speed. Played well last week against Syracuse. had a a terrific, uh, terrific pick, but I want to see him against the speedier players. And that's, what's going to happen this weekend against Tutu Atwell. I really like Damler Hamlin. He's a guy who came back for another season. He's smart. He's instinctive. He's got terrific size over six foot tall, goes a shade under 200 pounds. The problem is he doesn't have great speed. Uh, he makes plays with his head rather than with his physical ability. So that's going to be a matchup to see if one Tutu Atwell can exploit Damar uh, Hamlin, or Hamlin is able to use his smarts 
to contain Atwell. You mentioned uh, the cornerback, uh, Jason Pinnock. I have him graded as a late fifth, early sixth round choice. Scouts feel he's more priority free agent, but he's got really good size and he's got solid ball skills. So those three guys, you know, protecting against the big playability of Atwell, as well as the underneath pass catching skill of Fitzpatrick, never mind the running game of Louisville, which is able to, uh, you know, pick up big chunks of yardage uh, on any snap of the ball is going to be something to watch. The other thing to watch is if Rashad Weaver is able to run down Malik Cunningham uh, at any point in the game. Rashad Weaver, the defensive end from Pittsburgh, who came into the season with high grades from scouts, sat on the sidelines last year with injury, had a real good game last week against Syracuse, had a lot of stats and really made his presence felt. It's going to be a different ball of wax against Louisville with Malik Cunningham, basically a a, a run-pass oriented uh, quarterback who can kill you running the ball as quickly as he can or as as much as he can throwing the ball, and also the running backs, JV and Hawkins, who we talked about before. So that's, that's another matchup to keep an eye on during this game. Now we'll stay in the ACC and take a look at Duke, Virginia, where Blue Devils tight end Noah Gray will face off against Cavaliers linebackers Charles Snowden and Noah Taylor. Gray is Duke's leading receiver through two games, 10 catches for 129 yards, five catches in each of those two games. And he's catching passes further downfield as well, as I alluded to on our preview show back in July. He's got good height for a move tight end, which will be interesting watching him against Snowden, who actually has a couple inches on Gray. Don't see that often with linebackers against tight ends. We'll see if Gray ends up being neutralized at all by Snowden's length. He did have just three catches for 12 yards in last year's 48-14 loss to Virginia. Virginia has yet to play in 2020. And not only is Snowden tall and long, but so is his teammate at the same position, Noah Taylor. Also like Snowden, Taylor has proven effective in space. So this does profile as a tough matchup for Gray. Can he improve on last year's poor game, Tony? Uh, I, I mean, if he keeps the momentum going, you would think so. But I think this is also going to be one of his uh, tougher matchups. Although he did, he did relatively well against Notre Dame. I mean, Gray basically is a tall possession receiver in a tight end's body. That's the best way to put it. He needs space to work. It gives effort blocking, doesn't get real great results, but he easily moves about the field. He's a solid pass catcher. I have him graded as a fourth-round uh, selection. Scouts love him. I mean, there are some scouts who believe he's going to be a second-round prospect. I don't know because I think he's a bit one-dimensional in the sense that he's primarily a pass catcher whose blocking is is beyond is below par, not because of lack of effort. I think the only way he gets into the second round is he's going to have to run some blistering times Uh, prior to the draft and he doesn't look like a guy that's going to run in the mid to low four sixes he looks more like a a mid to uh, a mid four seven guy Uh, the Virginia kids are going to be enjoyable to watch you know Noah Taylor he's got safety size but he plays linebacker he goes sideline to sideline he covers a tremendous amount of area he's very explosive Charles Snowden is sort of the Carlos Basham of Virginia if you will in the sense that He's a guy that's got terrific size. He can make a lot of plays up the field if they send them up the field, but he's a smart, tough, disciplined defender who plays assignment football. He's not a guy who just pins his ears back and rushes up the field and takes off against the quarterback. He recognizes his, his responsibilities in coverage. He stays with his, uh, his assignments in coverage, covers a lot of area. He's a real tall guy, as you uh, point out. The problem with him is he's tall and thin. 
And he's, got, he's a high-hipped guy, which means he's got very long legs, which means he's very easy to block. But still, makes a lot of plays on, on the football against the run and in space. Like to, so it'll be a good matchup against Gray and, and Duke. Enough with the ACC, though. The SEC is officially back, and really not a moment too soon. Vanderbilt and Texas A&M is by no means a marquee matchup with a 30-point spread, but it does surprise some increase. Two, one. But it does provide some intrigue. What the three, two, one. But it does provide some intrigue up front. Vanderbilt defensive end Dio Odiingbo will look to build on his 2019 improvement against a pair of day three offensive tackles for the Aggies in Dan Moore and Carson Green. And it's going to be an interesting matchup for Odiingbo against both of these guys because Odiingbo has good size, the room to grow into his very tall frame kind of like we were talking about a bit with Charles Snowden, but he's also a very good athlete. Moore is the more athletic of his two potential opponents, but Moore can't match Odiengbo's size and length, plays left tackle, but does have guard possibilities at the next level. On the other hand, Green isn't quite as athletic, but his length matches Odiengbo better than Moore's does. So it's really two contrasting styles of opponent for Odiengbo last week. Who do you think provides him the best matchup? I don't think either of them are going to match up. I think really if Odie Ingo plays the way we expect, he's going to eat up both of those guys. But, you know, he's a lot like Carlos Basham and Wake Forest, I should say. Vanderbilt uses him in a similar way that Wake Forest uses Carlos Basham. And he's not just a guy that comes out of a three-point stance and rushes up the field. They use him outside at end. They'll push him inside. They stand him up on occasion. He's used in space. He's an incredibly explosive athlete. Six five and a half, two hundred about two hundred eighty pounds. Runs and plays in the four sevens. Has got arms that are reportedly thirty five and a half inches long, and he plays to those measurables. It's not like it's not. He's not a straight line guy. He's very explosive, moving in every direction of the field. Uh, he can bend off the edge. He's deceptively strong in his ability to hold the point and basically eat up the blockers up the field. I mean, I like Dan Moore a little bit more than I like Carson Green. Scouts are kind of flipped on him. It's an interesting thing with Carson Green. Some scouts, I have him as a sixth-round pick. There are some scouts that have grade him as a seventh-round pick. There are some who believe he's going to go in the fourth round, where Dan Moore is more of a just a, a late-round guy from everyone who looks at him. I think both of these guys are college tackles will eventually be kicked into guard because they don't have the great height for the next level. You know, it's interesting that Texas A&M is, what did you say, a 30-point uh, favorite in this game? Yep. I mean, at Texas A&M, when I look at my draft board, both of their, their top players, Anthony Hines, uh, the linebacker, and Jamon Osborne, the wide receiver, both have opted out of the season. Osborne has said that he's preparing for the draft. Hines has yet to make a decision or make a public announcement that he's preparing for the draft, but he says he's going to opt out. So, you know, I know they got Kellamond, and, and Kellamond is all over the place as far as uh, scouts are concerned. Kellamond is a playmaker, but when you lose a player in offense and a player like defense the way Texas A&M has, uh, I, I don't know about that 30-point uh, spread. It's actually 31 with an over-under of 46-and-a-half, which uh... – so they're expecting uh, what Vanderbilt to score uh, 15 points then, I guess. Uh, not even. I think they're 46 and a half and 31. They're probably expecting like eight, 39 to eight, something in, in that range. 
Good luck with that. <laughs> so speaking of large spread games, Alabama and Missouri are facing off as well. And it's another spread close to 30 points. But really, if we always avoided potential blowouts, we would never talk about Alabama. And as an NFL draft podcast, we have to talk about Alabama. What we're watching for in this game is transfer wide receiver Damon Hazleton coming over from Virginia Tech to Missouri. And he's going to go up against the Crimson Tide secondary. Hazleton started strong for the Hokies early in his career after he transferred from Ball State. Eight, over 800 yards, eight touchdowns as a sophomore. He's a big receiver. Needs to th- show some improvement with his ball tracking. He's not the most natural receiver. Tends to clutch the ball, basket catch a little rather than using his hands. And that could spell a little bit of trouble against Alabama's corners, Patrick Sertan II and Josh Job. Both Sertan and Job can match Hazleton from a size and length perspective. Not a weight perspective, but no corner is going to match Hazleton in that sense. Sertan is the more athletic of the two corners and certainly the more highly regarded with first round grades from scouts. And while I'm not expecting Hazleton to show out too much in this game, I would like to see him finish more plays, run all of his routes with conviction. If he can at least do that against this Alabama duo, even if the production doesn't stand out, I'll hold out some hope for a solid season and a potential late round pick for Hazleton. You know, it's sort of like the, the overrated and the highly rated versus the non-rated and the non-mentioned because Hazleton really didn't even get a glance from scouts coming into the season, which I found surprising because did not have a good year at Virginia tech last year, 31 receptions for 527 yards prior to the, uh, the, 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 uh, compared to the prior campaign where, which as you mentioned, 51 receptions for over 800 yards also had 51 uh, receptions his first year at ball state. So uh, Hazleton's got some ability. He's got size. He's got a good, he, he's got good pass catching skills. You know, it's just a matter of him getting back to where he was in 2018 and, and building from there. Sertain, Sertain's not just getting first round grades. He's getting early first round grades. Scouts who grade underclassmen have already stamped him as a mid first round choice. He's athletic. He's fast. Obviously he's got great bloodlines. Problem with Sertain, as far as I'm concerned, is he's one of these college cornerbacks that really struggles making plays with his back to the ball. You see him do a lot of face guarding. You see him play the receiver's hands too much. And I think that will afford Hazleton an opportunity to do what he does best. See the ball, get up, use his large frame to uh, box out the opponent and come away with the reception. Uh, Hazleton is already listed uh, number one on the depth chart or a starter on the Missouri depth chart. Uh, since uh, make, going the grad, grad transfer route. be interesting to see with a new coach what type of offense Missouri plays this year because it used to be that wide-open spread offense where you'd have uh, a tight end that would never line up uh, uh, in tight on the line of scrimmage. It was always – everything was wide open. Uh, but I think this is a good opportunity for Hazleton going up against Alabama as specifically Patrick Sertain. And that's it for the 154th episode of The Draft Analyst presented by the Believe Sports Podcast Network. Do you believe? If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms and leave us a rating and a review. And feel free to ask us questions on Twitter that we'd be happy to answer on the show. We'll be back to look at the first week of SEC football, among other games, of course, next week. But until then, on behalf of Tony Pauline, I'm Chris Tripodi, and we'll talk to you soon.